Hello and welcome to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today we are talking about the goal-shy Gunners, finding out which team's fans got free beers from their rivals, and we'll be debating replays. Should they stay or should they be scrapped? Joining me, Tom Clark, for all of that, we have two of the finest football writers in the land, Alison Rudd and Martin Hardy, and a former footballer whose first FA Cup appearance saw him line up alongside Des Walker and Wes Morgan in a Nottingham Forest defence that kept a clean sheet in a 1-0 win against West Brom. Gregor Robertson is with us too. Now that story came out in a piece that we ran at the weekend, Gregor, where you also revealed that you used to do a quiz before <laughs> before every FA Cup game under Paul Hart, is that right? Yeah. Paul Hart was a, the academy director as well, and, and that was like his little tradition. And then when he got the first team job, he continued doing that, and that was kind of... It's a small thing, but it was like something that marked it out as different. Was it an FA Cup related quiz? Was it like a quiz of the year? Was yeah, it a football quiz or? It was always football related. Yeah, a guy called Andy Beasley who was the goalkeeper coach who uh, was the quiz master, and he took some stick as well. Yeah, but uh, it was very competitive. Did your success in the quiz dictate whether you got in the team or not? So, like, if you finished in the bottom, no, no, it, was not, it wasn't that important. No, but oh. uh, it was. Yeah, like I say, it was just something that made be a little bit different when the FA Cup came around really Excellent, I'm going to remind you of that next time I do any quiz questions and you kick off about it uh, To the Emirates then, to start with our FA Cup reactions where Arsenal had 48 shots in the past two home games and have failed to score a single goal Losing on Sunday 2-0 against Liverpool Mikel Arteta said his players might now have a mental barrier around scoring So after only one win in seven, are the wheels coming off at Arsenal? Alison Rudd well, it's interesting he's um, allowing that talk in, I think, about mm. it being a mental block. Because if you talk about a mental block, you grow the mental block, I Quite, think. And then yeah. the players who didn't know they had a mental block are thinking, oh, I might have a mental block. And then it gets worse. Um, but why would you have a mental block? Because there's nothing nicer than scoring. What's to be scared of? It's very strange, I think, the whole idea that um, highly competent, well-paid fated strikers suddenly en masse become unable to think straight and that's the point isn't it you're not supposed to think if you're a top class striker you're supposed to be a finely oiled machine that when you're played in or the cross comes in or whatever the the moment is you've practiced it so much that you're very relaxed about having a pop at goal do you, um, sorry do you think they have a top class striker they're not rubbish are they not top class though well, well, by definition, they're not at the moment because they're not scoring goals. Yeah. But I think there are a number of players there who are capable of being that. I mean, we've seen someone like... No, we've seen Eddie and Ketia, what was he, come off the bench and score three in ten minutes or something. I mean, we've seen players... Gabriel Jesus was all, never meant to be your out-and-out-and-out striker. He was meant to be more than that, but also have an intelligent strike on him. I mean, play, they've the TV commentary on Sunday highlighted Kai Havertz and how he takes an extra touch when he probably shouldn't. But I don't I don't think that's I don't think they're all taking an extra touch when they shouldn't. It's just it's just that if you're not in the groove, I mean strike being a striker is about being selfish and comfortable in yourself. And if they're not, then it's you can still be a top class striker and have an off month, I think. No, do you no, think? No, do you no. think? But by definition, they're not top class strikers at the moment. But I think they're all. I anyone who's playing there is capable of it. Period. I think they're very good, but not top class. It was interesting the quote from Arteta afterwards when he said finishing is probably the hardest thing to replicate in football in terms of coaching. 
So the timing, the behaviour of the opponent, the distance between the ball and the feet of the opponent. So it's an, an element that he can't quite get into the players. And I would suggest they're not quite good enough. Gabriel Jesus leaves Man City because Man City won an upgrade to win the European Cup, which they did. The problem which Tom alludes to in terms of his unravelling because it, it was perceived at the end of last season, oh, they needed dominant centre midfielder, which they bought. That hasn't made much difference. There was concerns about their defence. Now there isn't. Arteta seems to be getting more and more excitable during this period and you might want him to be a little bit calm, which is where the mental health, sorry, the mental situation pressure quote that he, he puts on top of his own players. But the bottom line is they don't necessarily have the very, very world-class players up front to take to that next step. But then you look at the Premier League and you say, does the Premier League has, have top-class forwards anymore? And Dominic Solanke is the third top scorer in the country. And in 2008-2009, Manchester United had Wayne Rooney, Cristiano Ronaldo, Carlos Tevez and Berbatov. And all four of them are, would walk into any of the top yeah, teams. They in would. So there's been this general, perhaps, we're in the, the, the period of the cult of the coach where... The systems and the coach are more important than the top class players. From there, somehow, Arteta has to get something a bit more out of his forwards. And on the recent shown, that's not happening. But even if we were talking about, because you make a fascinating point there about forwards and the the change in the game and how we're, you know, it's a more all round forward player these days rather than a traditional striker. But also, it's confidence as well, isn't it? More than, you know, natural finishing ability. And if you were looking at Kai Havertz yesterday in that game, as well as maybe not having that instinctual, reactive, you know, moments that he, you need as a striker. He also looks completely gone in terms of confidence, doesn't he? There was one moment that Gregor and I were discussing uh, before the show where he not only took a touch that he didn't need to, he took a touch and seemed to slow down and move further away <laughs> from the goal. Yeah. It's like, like going, going off to like the God, left. Just like, away I'd rather not do this if I can. It's like he was going to run, run to the corner flag <laughs> to kill some time. It was completely bizarre. But, Greg, but he's, sorry, he's played left-back for Germany this year, yeah? Mm. That doesn't suggest he's a clinical finisher in, in a game of football. And I think he's okay. He's probably had more abuse this season than he merits. But he's not the answer to Arsenal winning the title by playing him in that position. No. He's just going to keep missing and missing. James, James Gilbrand's like written pieces as well where he described him as a, a, box, cra- a box crasher, which is what he was in, in, in German football before he came. And you know, almost a bit of a free role, but someone who, who arrived late into the box and, and finished that way. He's definitely not the one who's leading the line. And for talking about who they have, like Jesus is a top class player, but whether he's the top class striker that Arsenal need that, you know, to kind of borrow Ian Wright's little little tweet the other day, is the killer in the box they need is another question. And whether he's reliable enough and durable enough to last a Premier League campaign and be the man who's who's there for, you know, eighty percent of the games. He's not. That's been proven really over you know, cons- consistently over recent years. So they need someone. It's not like they're often these these kind of narratives spring up out of, you know, a, a little bad run here and there, but this has been, like, abundantly clear for a long time that this is the kind of a major piece of the puzzle that Arsenal are lacking. And you know, we, Martin referenced uh, Declan Rice's arrival, and he has made a big difference. It was not so long ago that was the that was the kind of the conversation point we were having. He's made a massive difference in terms of like their defensive solidity. And control, but going the other way, they're they're in a bit of a hole. So, do we think going back to Alison's point at the top about Arteta, are these comments 
not particularly helpful. Well, they were very helpful to me, an editor yesterday, when he came out and said <laughs> them, because having watched the game and thought, how are we going to contrive this into a big story? I mean, Liverpool have won again, not really great for Arsenal. And then Gary Jacob rang in and said, Arteta said his team have got psychological problems. Fantastic, <laughs> Gary. Thanks so much. Um, but they're not particularly helpful, are they, Gregor, as a player? If it's only going to, for players like Kai Havertz, if you're in the dressing room thinking, God, I really should have scored in that game. They're going to be on my back again. I can't check social media. And then your manager says that. That's only going to sow even more seeds of doubt, isn't it? Perhaps, yeah. I mean, I'm always slightly hesitant to, you know, sometimes think the language barrier might be something here. It's about, I'm not saying, he won't be thinking that they're all kind of got these neuroses about finishing. I think he'll be thinking that they need to be more kind of clear-headed and clinical. And I think that, I I feel that's what what he means, but, and it probably could have been directed at Kai Havertz alone. Be honest, yeah. but, so but there's there are. It's not just about a striker too. The teams have kind of discovered if they if they shut down Martinelli and and Saka, which is no mean feat and has been very difficult for teams to do for a long time. But if they're successful in doing that, then it's it leaves Arsenal in a massive hole. And Odegaard has not been anywhere near what he he was last season. He had a little bit of a kind of return to form, but it's still not hitting the same heights. So when you take out the kind of attacking qualities of the three players behind the striker they don't have they're in trouble It was an interesting game in terms of Liverpool's performance um, because I thought it was a fantastic game and I think really enjoyable to watch and as much as we'll go on to talk about the merits of the FA Cup and how seriously people take it these two teams and many others put out decent sides um, and a lot of star star quality players depending on the term of the youth star there (laughs) given our conversation but Alison, where, what did you make of Liverpool's performance? Because they themselves missed a lot of chances early in the first half. Um, Darwin Nunes perhaps not quite as guilty as Kai Havertz, but similar kind of worries about confidence, sharpness and clinical finishing. They do seem to have a little bit that of that mental resilience perhaps that Arsenal don't have this season under Jurgen Klopp. In that second half, I thought not just the changes, but there was a lot of like tactical fouls, a lot of yellow cards taken very happily. Um, and I thought Trent Alexander-Arnold's celebration after the goal was scored from the corner seemed to say, yeah, we're well, well up for this. Yeah, no, well, I was I was going to sort of say the same in that they're, they're in opposite places mentally, aren't they? And the first half was a barrage of Arsenal pressure. I, as a Liverpool fan, I wasn't bothered in the least. You, there's, there's become a pattern now that no matter what happens in the first half with Liverpool, whether they play dominantly or not they're going to be better in the second half and there is a set a buoyancy about the, just their body language and the way they play that they believe they will get a way through they will find a way through and that if they've done anything that's below par they will address it I'd love to hear the entire halftime team talk these days that Klopp gives because they do come out much much better he tweaks the team well it's as though the players expect that to happen um, and so they're rather than being cowed by the fact they've faced so many shots just I don't know you could argue it's slightly embarrassing you're top of the league and you're it's bang 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 that's a bit silly but no they don't they they sort of like those sort of machines in sci-fi films that sort of learn when you're not noticing they sort of absorb what's happening and turn it on the opposition afterwards and it's sort of like you've sort of felt that Liverpool were taunting Arsenal with how they played in the second half. You've done all that, but we're not the least bit. We're not the least bit upset by it. You've not you've not disrupted our rhythm at all. This is something that we're we're quite happy to do. And of course, the stats about Liverpool scoring 
after the 75th minute. That, you know, that confidence that must give you as a striker, it's the exact opposite of what they're feeling in the Arsenal camp, isn't it? They're thinking, oh, it doesn't matter how many times we have a go, we're not going to get through. And Liverpool thinking, it doesn't matter how many times the opposition have a go, we'll find a way through at the end of the game. Martin, in relation to some of the points Alison made there, it's great to have you on the show and you've made made the long trip down from the North East. So I want always to make the most of having our reporters here and ask them the questions that I often always ask Greg, Gregor and Alison and Martin Samuel and things. Looking at these two teams in the season as a whole and thinking about like the title race, where, where do you see them? Obviously, you're quite critical of Arsenal's yeah. forward play. Do you see it as... We were talking on Thursday with Johnny Northcroft and Martin Samuel about maybe it heading towards a two two horse title race between Liverpool and City. How are you seeing it, City? Of course, with Kevin De Bruyne back as well. First of all, more critical of Arsenal's forwards than forward play. Their forward yes. play is good. They're just obviously not taking the chances, which comes back to loads of different things in terms of confidence and all that. If you were to say who is the better team to watch, more interesting team to watch, you may say Arsenal. But if you were to put money on it, who is going to finish high? You would say Liverpool, I think. I still, it, I still think it's a case of how many points you can get on Man City before Man City, City really get into their stride. Their stride may coincide with Kevin De Bruyne. It may coincide with the forwards becoming a bit fitter. Haaland having a spell without injury. Maybe that's where it comes in. Maybe there is a, leg- a fitness legacy or an emotional legacy from doing the treble, which perhaps wears off in February. We'll see. I would still say if you finish above Man City, you win the league. And I don't think Liverpool are good enough to do that yet. They've, they, I think they are growing in belief which I agree with exactly with what Ali says. Odegaard's shot goes in on, on another day and Liverpool perhaps get beat. Liverpool play at St James's Park early in the season and Newcastle are the better team with 11v11 and then perhaps the better team when Van, uh, Van Dijk's been sent off. And at 1-0, um, Almiron's shot is... is it, um, Alisson saves, it bounces off the crossbar, bounces off his head, doesn't go in, it's not 2-0. And then... Darwin Nunes hits two of his 76 shots that actually go on target and go in the net and Liverpool have won and they take a massive bounce from that as they will have done last night so each time they do it they keep growing but again not to appear too commodgingly this team Liverpool have now would get beaten pretty comfortably comfortably, I think by the Liverpool team that won the title a few years ago because I just think they were better this is still a work in progress by Nunes playing as a central striker and I wouldn't trust him again if, if you were to say to Arsenal pick a player that's going to win you the title as a goal scorer, you wouldn't look at Darwin Nunes and he gets moved out wide in the second half, which perhaps gives him a bit more impact because there's not as much pressure on him. He actually they have look- Salah. Sorry? They have Salah. Yeah, they have Salah. That's the difference. Actually, Nunes looks like an Arsenal forward. Uh, that's probably the biggest <laughs> insult I could say. You just wouldn't trust them to score a goal like you needed to. But but they are getting more and more confident. Um, they're much more difficult to beat than, than last season players are starting to develop so I do think they'll give Man City a run for the money and a lot of that is confidence and then you saw them play against Newcastle um, on New Year's Day and they just had so much power in the team then you thought that's starting to look a little bit more like a Jurgen Klopp team was the XG 7.1 or something Mm. Um, 18 shots to one at half time and that's Newcastle like to play that Liverpool style but they just got a bit blown away so you can see the development from August to January and how they are progressing but I still think there's a long way to go Tom you mentioned that you enjoyed the fact that there were two strong teams put out. And mm. one one reason that Liverpool did that was it was just really important for this period coming up that they show they can win without Mo Salah. Really important. Yeah. So you, so you, you were deliberately, we're talking about yeah. what managers do to improve the psyche of the team, that mattered a lot because everyone would have... No, no, pe- people were not talking about Mo Salah during that game because it was... It, it didn't... Obviously, you never not... 
going to miss him, but it didn't matter. And that's what that was so important. Yeah, well, you just you say that. Well, at nil-nil, that was my idea for a back page, was talking about Mo Salah and the absence, and look what happens when he goes away. No one can score a goal, but thankfully Luis Diaz and an own goal came up trumps. Uh, moving on to the Stadium of Light and the other big game of the weekend, and Martin Hardy, the reason you are here... Sunderland against Newcastle. <laughs> I'm only here because I heard there was free beer. Oh, that's true. Well, we'll come on to the free beer in a second. But um, I wanted to talk about before the match because we were incredibly excited about this match and you and I worked on a piece which was absolutely fantastic from yourself. Tell us you. a bit more about that piece and why this fixture ultimately makes people in the North East a bit crazy. <laughs> um, blame me, where do, where, where do I start on that one? I think it was when people realised that Sunderland had allowed a company to put up signs that said Black and White Army and change the spell and this actually proves how ridiculous the derby is the fact that the the people from Sunderland spell Hawaii with an apostrophe and an A and people from the not, from Newcastle spell it with an O Sunderland had let a company come in and put the, this up inside um, the Black Cats bar where Newcastle had tickets for and you forget Sunderland had been a League One and a Championship team and it was like here we can take some some of Newcastle's money and you're probably talking about a couple of hundred thousand pounds but then of course people realise that you are desecrating your home with your greatest rivals banners and at this point everybody in Sunderland goes berserk and it's like this is on Thursday afternoon like, now it's starting to feel like a Sunderland Newcastle game again crazy stuff starting to happen and you just we, we go through the recollection of Rude Hullock picking a white van driver ahead of Alan Shearer and Duncan Ferguson um, you then go back to a man punching a horse saying he regrets it because he loves animals and he feeds the foxes over the road and his wife then saying <laughs> he doesn't usually go out on his own and look what happens when he does and he, and all the elements of it Paolo de Canio sliding on his knees and then saying afterwards he'd been visited by his dead mother a vision of his dead mother in the visit and changing room at St James's Park so the list went on and on and on of these crazy stories I think it did prove that the, the kind of sun weren't ready for such a big fixture. So then we move it forward to the game. It's a bubble game. So you have 6,000 fans coming across from Newcastle. And we thought it would be chaotic. So I went to St. James's Park before the match and it was brilliantly organised in terms of you had a queue probably about half a mile long. Everybody quite patiently, the odd person drinking a bottle of Corona at about 18, 8.15 in the morning. Buses came in, everybody got a free scarf, which is a brilliant idea by somebody at Newcastle because the colour... The, the visual colour inside the stadium, especially after the match when Newcastle do their controversial team photograph in front of these fans, it really did look like Newcastle had conquered Sunderland that day by the finish. And to cap it all off in the bars as the buses wait to take 6,000 people back to Tyneside, a lot of fans had to wait, obviously, because the, the, the buses were kind of rolling in and rolling out. Sunderland very politely had left the bars open, but unfortunately, everything at the stadium of light went wrong that day. The Wi-Fi went off. It's a cashless stadium. Um... In a bid to help uh, give beer to the Newcastle fans, six members of staff in each bar were basically just pouring beer. So when you went to give your order to one of the other members of staff, they would go five pints, yes, they're there. By which time the Wi-Fi goes off, they can't take the cash. They then say to Newcastle fans, just take them for nothing. And that that kind of, <laughs> if if anything, kind of summarised just how bad a week Sunderland have had, that was it. They are now giving beer to Newcastle fans <laughs> for nothing. That that probably stings more, doesn't it, for a Sunderland fan than the, than the actual defeat in the match, giving away free beer to your rival fans. On the train down, having written that story and put on our fine website, I did have a couple of Sunderland fans who, and we are usually more uh, kind of relaxed in conversation, their, their tone was a little bit prickly. Yes, I would say so. Uh, coming on to the match itself, Alison, we were talking about this before, having read Martin's piece and got all excited. Yes, it's a Saturday. I was very excited. Saturday lunchtime, you know, I sat down to watch that first half and 
you know, Sunderland have been a team that I've enjoyed watching in the past, particularly under Tony Mowbray. I thought they played some really exciting and um, attractive football to watch. It was a bizarre approach to this game from Michael Beale, wasn't it, Alison? Well, I don't know. He's not been there long enough, maybe. I don't know. It was... uh, uh, What do you do in a cup tie against a team in the division above who better than you? You try and make it equal in other ways. I don't know. You, you, You play the sort of rough and tumble football that they might not be used to. You give it everything. You're aggressive. Don't try and play pretty football because Newcastle can play prettier football than you. It, they, it was so they were in some sort of um, dream world where they thought they were equal. Mm. And in some way, sh- showing you're equal isn't about the result. Showing you're equal is about uh, we can play football too. Yeah, Tony Cascarino yeah. talked in his column about the stepping, standing off players like Bruno Guimaraes, and that uh, you know you hear players talk about all the time. And Greg, I'm sure you could shed more light on this. That idea that in that scenario and you you saw it every Sunderland fan was stood up which only happens either when you think there's a goal or a corner but they were stood up for the whole opening what 20 minutes maybe and so they're desperate for something to latch onto and instead the Sunderland players are sta- standing off Bruno Gamara's going pick your pass mate don't worry <laughs> give, give it a bit of time Martin what was the, the atmosphere like in the ground as the, well? the atmosphere was brilliant um, you know the kind of the pantomime dune of the coaches that came in and the Newcastle coaches they wound their way through the Sunderland fans and it felt symbolic that the first person off the bus was a six foot seven Geordie from Blythe Dan Byrne just laughing his head off. I thought yeah you've, you've sent your hardest bloke out first and he's alright <laughs> with this um, and that ca- did carry on but the, the atmosphere at the start was brilliant the, the, the one thing Celtic and Rangers has completely lost is that colour element for the neutral you, you would watch 8,000 fans either tucked away in a, a corner of Parkhead or 8,000 behind the goals at Ibrox and red, white and blue and then you know green, white and orange and it would give you this brilliant contrast so that's what the ground had it was just red and white weather you looked apart from 6,000 people defiantly holding the scarves up so the atmosphere was brilliant at the start what I would say was if you were a Newcastle fan and this, and this is probably with hindsight would you have rather Michael Beale was the coach for Sunderland or would you rather have it Sam Allardyce in and I think you would say Sam Allardyce every day of the week whether or not you were his biggest fan he would have went right don't play out from the back because they love to press and they've had a week to get themselves fit again whereas they've struggled because of the three games does, and they may have to alter the style going forward because it physically demanded too much of the players this time the players had a week of rest and suddenly kept playing out from the back out from the back and gave, gave away a goal after 31 seconds in the second half they'd even been an offside and they still went back forward back and the player gets caught Newcastle have had a weakness in that hold and roll position in front of the two centre-halves because Gamera just has to do so much he holds and he more or less plays as a number 10 it was only when they, they finally moved Alex Pritchard in that position in the second half they had, they had some, some success agree with what Ali said it looked like Mal- Michael Beale was coaching and say I can do what Eddie Howe does I'm a very modern coach look at this and he thought this isn't about Michael Beale this is about Sonnen trying desperately to kind of arrest their slide over the last few years by doing something against Newcastle and you know they just about did nothing Newcastle took control very very early um, and Bob maybe five minutes in the second half never really uh, give that give that away and it did feel like Sonnen's errors start with the bar the signs the tactics the beer it just seems like they weren't ready for this game Gregor what did you make of all those points? Yeah pragmatists are a dying breed though aren't they that's why he got the job to say you know this is the way I play this is mm. I've stamped my authority on the team and you know part of the cool philosophy of the club now is to sign young players and develop them in a certain way and so I kind of I suppose it does follow that that's the way they'll approach every game but it's true they were just then that sort of the gulf was so clear um, and it was also a bit of a hybrid between as you say standing off and showing too much respect and 
not doing the things, the competitiveness and the, you know, combativeness even in a derby, and then trying to play it from the back, you know. So it was like, you, when they had the ball, they were trying to play in a certain way, but when they when they didn't have the ball, they didn't show any of the sort of fight that the team wanted, that their fans want and expect in a derby game. In terms of Newcastle's performance, Martin, you've written a piece uh, on the Times website today talking about Kieran Trippier and the difficulties he's had, but how this match gave him maybe a platform to improve and go forward and forget that troublesome period. No, absolutely. And him missing against Liverpool, I had thought and was kind of hearing he will be fit for Sunderland, even though there was a bit of question mark. And I thought this is the perfect game to bring him back in for as a leader, as one of the best players. Um and he kind of, I think he crossed the ball twice in the first two minutes, taking a corner, faced the abuse of Sunderland fans, which he took for the whole game. Um, but everything he did was correct in terms of when he went long, when he went short, how he led the team. Um, and he is a, an essential part of Newcastle playing well, so they need him back. He's only had one bad month, in fairness, since, the, and it was two years yesterday that Newcastle signed him as the first signing uh, after the takeover. And he's, you know, pound for pound, one of the best signings. I think Newcastle fans would say that they've bought in decades, if not ever. But his run kind of coincided with the team conking out and losing confidence, losing a bit of steam. So the way he played um, suggest, suggests that, it, and Eddie Howe said this after the game, it's a, it's potentially a springboard. They've got another break till Man City of, what, six, seven days. And inside the club, it was kind of win the derby, try and get some out of Man City and there's is it a 15 day rest before Villa or a two week rest before the Villa game in which time they hope to kind of recharge their batteries again and get ready to go so yeah it was important for him um, and you can see the, the the celebrations he did on his own never mind the team photo he was just fist clenched um, he was winding up the Southern fans by the finish point of the scoreboard when it was 2-0 deliberately putting the ball outside the, the, the section when he's taking a corner all those kind of things which and when you when you watch good players at the best at the best and Virgil van Dijk does this sometimes it's kind of I think it's now it, it, they will go to an opponent it's like I think it's now my turn to have the ball back thank you I can take it off you whichever way you want we can make this a fight or you can give it me simply and that's how he played on Saturday Yeah Do you think he's almost kind of this match and his performance was slightly symbolic of where Newcastle's season yes, was 100%. at you know you had mischievous editors like me and James talking to you going Eddie Howe's in a bit of trouble here isn't he if he loses this game all that talk is gone now. Well, They've got a break. Mischievous said it or Newcastle fans in the North East who would, and he, maybe this is the same everywhere, but it feels like it's unique. And in Newcastle, if you go to Sainsbury's, if you go to the shop, if you go down the street, everybody pesters you for a bit of what's happening, who are they signing, and that never stops. Are you famous then? Are you that famous? <laughs> are you going to supermarkets and people know who you are? I can't say on air that it was, there was one good part of COVID but the good thing would perhaps be that you could put a mask on and you weren't allowed to speak to anybody when you try to do shopping <laughs> so you could get it done in 20 minutes instead of standing there for two hours with people you see once every two years and they want to know who they're about to sign and what's happening with the tactics so the conversations leading up to the derby were oh it's wrong people are putting pressure on Eddie's done brilliant but he better win the derby yeah. so they said exactly the same as yourself and in conversation with Eddie it was like he wanted control and perhaps that they are learning from certain elements of this season they made a mistake, I think, in not going to AC Milan before the match to train at the San Siro. They got delayed. They were late for the first press conference in the European uh, in the European Cup for twenty years. By the finish of Paris, they were training on the pitch the day before the game. So there's little elements they've learned. The club is learning as well at the same time. And that big thing for Eddie Howe is control of the game, control of all the aspects, control of the emotion, and they had that on Saturday. But it was a really important win for him. How uh, annoying for Sunderland fans, though. They've kickstarted. Put Newcastle back <laughs> on track. They've saved their season. Not, was, not just lost. I, I've bumped into certain Newcastle fans 
Saturday night memories and certainly on Sunday and they're just these huge smiles because it, at, for lots of different reasons the bad run against Sunderland of nine games without beating them has, has gone um, that line in the sand's done it kickstarts Newcastle's season if you've been really harsh you'd say I'm not quite sure when they're going to play each other again I can't see Sunderland getting promoted in the short term people have said Luton and I've said well Luton's home ground seems like that was a big big factor in that promotion and Luton went very physical to get out of the division where Sunderland you saw them lining up for the wall and they're not a big team no. and it was like Tony Mowbray's Diddy men last season yeah. but they were passed the ball really well and they were nice to watch but this season they seem to be a little bit a little bit lost. Remain to be convinced that swapping Tony Mowbray for Mike Beale was the, yes. the right choice. No, well, absolutely. As we were saying Tony Mowbray had just been given the Birmingham City job uh, we will see if they go past each other in the championship <laughs> over the coming months. Big pressure on Michael Beale. Uh, game podcast listeners I've always say get in touch with me over email but it turns out if you see Martin Hardy in the street make sure you go up to him <laughs> tell him how much you enjoyed him on the show. Uh, <laughs> stick with us because uh, as well as Martin Hardy's revelations about his personal life as a journalist <laughs> we'll also be talking about uh, replays in the next part of the show and we'll also be asking where would you like see Kylian Mbappe in the Premier League. Stick with us. Welcome back to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. I'm Tom Clark, and today I'm joined by Alison Rudd, Martin Hardy and Gregor Robertson. Now, one of the big talking points of this third round was replays, but before we get into that, debate which I'm sure will be a heated one I wanted us to pick out some of the other moments that caught our eye Gregor I'm going to start with you because I think I know where you're going to go it has to be Maidstone United yeah, yeah. Um, they'd already overcome Barrow who are flying high in League 2 and this wasn't obviously the kind of plum, dry, uh, plum draw that they would have dreamt of against Stevenage but it gave them a chance in, in their kind of compact stadium artificial uh, pitch and you know they rode their luck a little bit Towards the end, but it's 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 a great story for a club that obviously uh, was kind of reborn in in 1992 and now seems to be run really kind of prudently. I think they've turned a profit in ten consecutive seasons, um, and they have George Elakobi as manager, who's who's a great character. Absolutely, what a brilliant interview after the game as well. Yeah. So many brilliant interviews after the game. Yeah, and he's played at every. I think he's played every every level, the top six tiers in English football, and scored in them all. Obviously, most notable for his time at Wolves, uh, with whom he played in the Premier League. Um, but he's really he, his enthusiasm is kind of infectious, and he's and his smile and his his joy at the end of the game. So, I really hope they get a a good draw uh, in the, in the next round. Well, I don't know whether being a goalkeeper in my six aside team puts me in the goalkeepers union, but I'm going to do it for this point anyway. Cameron Dawson, the Sheffield Wednesday goalkeeper, saving two penalties in three minutes in the opening stages of their four nil win against Cardiff. Wednesday cruising to that victory and it's quite easy to forget if you save two uh, two penalties so well done to Cameron Dawson anyone else get any moments from the third oh, round I, I mean, that was hilarious Tom that was it was it was I, I don't know that was like complete comedy slapstick FA Cup third round football it was you shouldn't laugh when people have, have every shot saved and penalty saved and it was. It was. It was. I, I loved gonna, it. I loved gonna, it. I loved it. Did. It was. It was very, very funny. It was very funny. But um, I think for a lot of, I think for a lot of people, and maybe it's young people. I mean, maybe the FA Cup is for old people. I don't know. But but that's okay because there's plenty of us. Yes, <laughs> we need something. No one's old on this I podcast. Don't, I don't Come know. On. I don't know if very young people are that excited by the FA Cup in the way that older generations were. Because you know, the classic is it was the only football you saw on telly, so it really, really mattered. And now it's everywhere. But and 
kids watch clips as opposed to sit down. I mean, I've got a nephew who refuses to watch live football. While, while live football's on, he'll be watching feeds of other things. He doesn't... The concept of concentrating on a live match seems anathema to him. It's very strange. But anyway, the thing that was getting young people excited was Patrick Bamford's goal. And um, that the fact that that came in a sort of old-fashioned looking FA Cup tie um, was lovely and also it didn't look like Patrick Bamford so a lot of people would have been saying who's that wonderful striker he scored that goal I mean never seen him before because he just looked unrecognisable with his new hair and beard and everything his Joe Linton hair it, yeah it was strange wasn't it but um, it, was, it, was, it was it was it was a beautiful goal and it's that thing of a single movement you control the ball on your chest and swivel and it's unstoppable and you know that you can't say ah you know wasn't a great goalkeeper no goalkeeper would have stopped it it was just stunning well I love the the big away followings and that's the, I, it's perhaps journalists to say the FA Cup will die the FA Cup will never die even if it's 16 non-league teams playing it it will still have survive in some shape or form but you, when you see the big away followings, you see what it means. So for there to be 9,000 Bristol City fans at West Ham was absolutely brilliant. Then you've got 6,000, which we've mentioned, Newcastle fans at uh, Liverpool. Sorry, at Sunderland, rather. So the, the, those big followings proves it does still mean something to somebody. And to, to see the club, the colours, all of that, the, the, the magic of the day, um, you know, that, that that's the highlight for me, seeing, Ch- seeing these big... I'll say Chesterfield at Watford as well. Mm. They were so close to. They were so close to getting a replay. A bit even more than that. They they the way they play. They've, they're earning points at a faster rate than Wrexham and Notts County did last season in that record-breaking season at the top of the National League. And they went and they were wiping the floor with Watford. And Watford. One big thing is the ability of t- for t- of teams now to make five subs. You know, if you, if a team's made a raft of changes and you get towards the later stages of a game mm. and what some a team like Watford are behind against a National League club and they throw in the cavalry it can have a major effect so I, you know I'm not happy about that go back to one, <laughs> go back to one sub, sub for FA Cup ties now we really are going back down I told you we're not old on this podcast but you're making yourself sound very very old indeed <laughs> they were talking about one subs talking about Bristol City and their point uh, not, not point but getting a draw at West Ham Martin but it leads me nicely on to talk about replays and I'm going to read some quotes from various managers Thomas Frank talking about their one-all draw with Wolves and the replay. This is the worst outcome in every respect. I said it yesterday, I simply don't understand why we have a replay. Nuno Espirito Santo talking about their 2-2 draw with Blackpool. It changes the plan. Now we have to reorganise and we won't get a break because the priority is the replay. Now now what is best for the team is to start preparing for that replay. That is the priority. That is unfortunate. Neil Critchley, the Blackpool manager, on the other hand. This was our 35th game of the season. The Premier League teams haven't played that. They get international breaks. Time off, we don't. Get on with it. Look at the resources, the finance, the staffing. We don't have that. It's tough. Get on with it. Let's play football. Ian Everett, after their nil-nil draw, to, sorry, Ian Everett, the Bolton manager, after their nil-nil draw with Luton. This club has really suffered. We almost lost the club in 2019. To get it back to where we want, it requires revenue and an FA Cup replay. Hopefully a full house and a TV game goes a long way. So, Can, can I start with an anecdote here from when Liverpool, played, oh, Liverpool played away uh, against Lask? So the day before with several Liverpool journalists in Linz um, having a bite of, to eat. And it was when Harry Maguire was getting a lot of grief from the fans and Gareth Southgate said he'd never seen anything like this. And so I was sat and I went, I th- can remember a game at Villa Park where all you could hear was Adams is a donkey, Adams is a donkey. And it was um, Liverpool against Arsenal. And I was like, was it a FA Cup semi-final? And he went, went through, through his brain. He went, no, he said it was a League Cup replay. So in 1988, first game at Anfield... 
replay the replay then goes to Highbury. Now, if there was if it was a draw at that stage and I'd forgotten all this, it would then go to a neutral venue. So the the, the third game between the teams again midweek was at Villa Park when twenty one thousand people turn up, and we all said, imagine if you had to say to Jurgen Klopp. Now we've got to go and have a, uh, a replay on a neutral venue. His head probably would have exploded. So you are talking about a cultural change. However, the one thing I thought on the way down, the removal of the replay makes the game really poor because some teams will go, we're here for a penalty shootout. And you get this really bland version. I think Leicester did it to Newcastle last season in the, in the League Cup. All they were there for was the, the, re, the penalty shootout and to go home. So it does change the dynamic dramatically. I understand teams playing too many games, the Lord, I don't like that argument from Alan Shearer's done. I didn't like it from here when he said, oh, you're a footballer, play football. It's not like that now for the top-level players. It's so The physicality is so intense to keep them playing games. However, the removal of the replay alters the game dramatically and makes it really poor sometimes. Well, Martin Ziegler, um, in early December, in his column that runs every Friday on the Times website, was reporting that FA Cup third and fourth round replays are likely to be scrapped as FA Chiefs, Chiefs want the mid-season break kept intact and with an expanded Champions League and new international calendar set to put fixtures under pressure. There are two, two separate issues here. The, the reason these guys, I hope the reason people like Thomas Frank and Nuno are complaining is because they don't have the winter break now. That's yeah. why they complain. Because they have no grounds to complain whatsoever. As you said, Neil Critchley said, 30, 35th game of the season, I think it was Forrest 22nd. Yeah. Why would Forrest be complaining about, they've not went out again in the first their first game against Burnley in the, FA, in the EFL Cup a game I was at which I will never get there was 90 minutes back in my life it was <laughs> horrific so straight out of that cup I know they want to concentrate on Premier League survival but come on like they have nothing to complain about most teams in the country and sorry in the Premier League have nothing to complain about so this whole this whole conversation it's all about you know we spend a disproportionate like amount of our life lives listening to elite managers whine about how many games they're playing and so the, the idea shape, that we shape the football calendar for those 68 teams like forget about everyone else is absolutely nonsense it's, it's just just to Martin's point about the kind of game management and stuff and I think I've asked you this before but I always like to reiterate it when you were playing did this idea of the calendar and busy fixtures ever come up in the dressing room amongst you and your fellow players of like, oh god, it's a bit much, isn't it? I'm a bit tired. Did that ever come up? I mean, it, the only time was the Christmas period, which you know it can be a lot. What were there? I think in the football leagues, some of the teams had like four games in ten days or something. Uh, so yeah, Christ, you were tired, but it was part of the tradition. That's like that's part of like <laughs> you know the 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 challenge of getting results was was overcoming that fatigue and fighting through it and getting getting results. I know it's different at the top level, but they, but Critchley was right. The resources are different. Just change your team, prioritize. Like the idea that we should change the football calendar, as I'll say it again, for sixty-eight teams, completely f- ignoring the, what the rest of the, the the teams in the in the pyramid want. You know, like Ian Everett, as you say, there was pointing out, bring a, you either earn. Uh, a replay on your own patch which is like something great to look forward to or you're earning a trip to, to a big stadium that's generally what we're talking about and that's huge for so many clubs not just financially but like in terms of making memories and stuff as well so I mean I've, I understand the, the argument because it's like a half arsed winter break now we have like so how some teams because they've you know drawn a game in the FA Cup get a rest and some don't 
is a nonsense. But, so that's a that's a that's a something that's up for discussion. But the idea that most Premier League teams are complaining about having replays more generally is is just but, ridiculous. But you have, I mean, yeah. But I have some sympathy with Thomas Frank in that he he's juggling limited resources at the moment. I mean, you know, the the international duty of his of his various players, his his best players have been injured or suspended. And he's no, no, no. But he's had to think. Okay, I've got to plan somehow a way to make sure we stay in the Premier League, and how he's planned for the winter break, how he's get the best out of it, where he goes, what they do, the whole ambience of that, what you do to try and reset so that you you can come back after a, a sort of dismal run, is completely thrown in the air because there's a replay. I agree. It's not. I think that's it's reasonable to break. complain about that. Get rid of the winter break or do it properly. Just have a weekend off. Like they've, they've staggered it over two weekends so that the broadcasters still have games to, to yeah. put on the TV. Every, every you know they don't miss out for a weekend. Do it properly and give everyone a weekend off and don't rearrange FA Cup replays in the winter break. Yeah, but this is also the problem, isn't it? Because as I said when I was reading out that um, Martin Ziegler piece from early in December, it's talking about an expanded Champions League, more international fixtures, and as Gregor, you're saying there, TV fixtures for the top clubs. It's it's piling it up all at the top, and then these clubs in the EFL are not going to get anything. And this also comes on the back of another Martin Ziegler piece last week. Um, the Premier League will be summoned to appear before MPs later this month to explain the delay in agreeing a financial settlement with the EFL. The move reflects growing pressure in Whitehall for a funding deal to be concluded with a number of EFL clubs in financial difficulties. The EFL has argued a financial reset is needed to close the increasing financial gap with the Premier League. If we're getting rid of replays, Ian Everett, and Bolton and Neil Critchley and Blackpool are just going to get even less money. Yeah, but they shouldn't have to. They should, I mean, you know, it's it's fate who you draw out the hat in the FA Cup. You can't rely no, on fate not. giving you a good financial run in the FA Cup to get out of trouble. But it has been for a long time, and my club included. We in the run when we got promoted, but also had that great run in, under the Cowley brothers. Lincoln drew at. Um, at Portman Road against Ipswich and then got a replay at Sinsel Bank which was on telly and we won 1-0 and then off we go if that's not a replay maybe we go to extra time and penalties at Portman Road a couple of National League players aren't quite up to taking a penalty shoot out in front of a load of Ipswich fans we lose that that money that we made from that season basically set up the club for what happened after it another promotion and where we are now in League One I, I completely see Ali's point there which is kind of like you're doing your year's financial plan you say well if we win the lottery we'll be alright yeah. that's yeah, it yeah, yeah. if not but, that's a, but that is but sadly the, a lot of the state of where yeah, a lot of yeah. AFL clubs are so we should be looking after them better rather than letting well, them rely that, on absolutely. romance oh yeah, we've got the right to the cup might save you, you. yeah but then, then what we're saying is right we'll give you some more money guys if you just knock, knock all the, the replays in the head it's like yeah but the, the, sorry, the big thing about leaving the stadium light when the Castle fans are singing we'll meet again don't know where don't know when someone's Wi-Fi went off the ground is empty they outsourced the signage all that stuff is a club that's got no money Yeah, and they're they they playing a, a club, club that has got money that, that Sutherland yeah. would be seen so say to Lincoln City fans or to Bolton fans or even Blackpool fans some some of those fans of those clubs might argue with me, but Sunderland, a bigger club, yeah, yeah. you know, with greater aspirations, you know, signing young players, Jude Bellingham's brother, etc., etc. And but you're that, saying that's a club with no money, yeah. But so, that, that that top elite are moving further and further away. So that was the big feel at the end of the game. It was like these two teams might not play each other for a very long time, bar an exceptional circumstance like a cup tie or a one season promotion. So what's the future for Sunderland and Middlesbrough and Sheffield Wednesday and Stoke and all these teams? 
traditionally are big clubs, but they're lose. They've 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 been left you know, in the slipstream of the, the the either the elite, which is Liverpool, Man United, or those that have managed to tag in there, like probably Chelsea, Newcastle. But I would argue that those clubs that you've just listed there are actually now tipping into a different category of say big championship club whose aspirations are promotion to the big money in the Premier League who would actually maybe go as much as Sunderland fans I'm sure you would say oh I've hated it it was the worst day weekend in the season if you then come to them at the end and say let's say Michael Beale does turn it around mm. and they get in the playoffs they'll be like yeah we'll probably take that defeat against Newcastle in the cup maybe maybe yeah. I'm wrong but I'm talking more about the clubs even further down the Premier yeah, League yeah, of course. One, League 2 who are bluntly never really going to make yeah. it to the Premier League unless there's a Wrexham kind of story and I take your point Alison that that we there should be something better, but it just feels to me maybe this is cynic, cynical, maybe it's just realistic that actually what we're going to do is just take away that lottery moment. No, I think it needs and to not stay, replace it with anything else. Yeah, really, really. Because that, that was that part Martin's... of the magic of the cup. Part of the magic of the cup is I have just won the lottery. Yeah, and <laughs> exactly. I wasn't expecting it. And like, well, hundred grand. Some clubs blow it. Some clubs invest in the stadium, of youth, or whatever. And the money is really, really important. You can feel the ten years. That 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 is the essence of the FA Cup and the magic of it, and the replay, as you say, is. You know, earning a replay it would be awful. It used to be awful when they would change the games from their downtrodden little, little non-league stadium to play the first tie at the at the, the bigger team's ground just just for the financial element. Well, no, no, no. Play it, play it. At the, get them in the small dressing rooms. Have all that magic, the, the crap pitch, all that stuff that you've grown mm. with. As long as it's not Ronnie Radford, of course. All those elements are what makes the cup tie, and that's why you grab a hold of it. And the financial link, it it is. It's a lottery win. You can't plan for it, but when it comes, you don't. It does, it's supposed to cheer you up I was just talking to Tom earlier before we came on about a team in Scotland uh, called the Spartans who've drawn hearts and Spartans are like a really sort of upwardly mobile great community little little club but their, their history's in junior non-league football and Hearts said do you, do you want to play you know we can play the game at our stadium and they said no come to our patch and the fact that they can possibly you know do something special yeah. so it's about creating those memories as well it's not just about money but because part of the part of it is earning Either, as I say, a trip to a big stadium, but you earned it. Yeah. Or yeah. bring them back to your the, patch where you think we've got a good chance here now. The, the, the third round piece that we all did, where all the journalists from the Times said, well, give us a great memory from the third round of the Cup. I chose Whitley Bay in this kind of in the second round. I cheated a little bit. Whitley Bay beat Preston North End at Hill <laughs> <A little> Heads. Because <laughs> <laughs> only because the third round game was so grim. Okay, 1500 okay. Whitley Bay fans went to Preston, sorry, to Rochester the other day, got beat 1 0. It was a terrible game. But the, the second round game, the magic of the cup, there's 5,000 hellheads, which there's never been before and there's never been since. Loads of people of how many years ago, so it was 1990, were on the pitch. Um, it, gave, it, it, it gave a huge boost to Whitley Bay before the match. It was at the time when Durham Wasps and Whitley Warriors ice hockey teams were really successful and huge and getting three or 4,000. So they went, they did a video of a Whitley Bay game when there was like 300 people there and they used the commentary from the ice hockey games, which used to feature on Grandstand. So you just got this huge magic that people won't ever forget. The ground's not changed a great deal. Um, the pitch was quite heavy. Tom Finney was on the pitch before the game. So there's all those moments in the FA Cup of playing at the small grounds, which is which is, is an absolutely essential part of it. But talking about money, Martin Samuel's written his um, column on the Times website this morning, just talking about cups in general and in replays. The winner of the Carabao Cup receives £100,000. The winner of the FA Cup gets £2 million. But the single point that separated Bournemouth in 15th place last season and Nottingham Forest in 16th was worth £2.2 million. So when it comes to these these clubs in the Premier League, I mean, even talking about the big clubs, Martin, you cover Newcastle, Alison, you're a Liverpool fan. Do, do these cup competitions 
and you're going to say, oh, it's because we're old, that's why it matters. But <laughs> do, do they matter in the same way? If I was to offer you the chance to say, right, we won't be in the Carabao Cup then, you can, you can leave that. You can leave that to every team below the coefficient of whatever, say, from everyone from Everton and West Ham downwards, they can compete for the Carabao Cup and it'll have incentivised for something else. Would you take that or do you want to be in it because it's a trophy and it's nice to win a trophy? No, it was, I think it's deeply patronising to say let, let the hoi polloi have it. I don't, I mean, the reason any cup has a, a passion behind it is because of the, the possibility you might cause an upset against one of the, the very biggest clubs and if they're not in it to start with, then who cares anyway? And, and I think you have a duty as a big club to take it seriously, actually. And play your replays. Well, Newcastle New under they're under, changing the yeah. rules on the replays, so you, yeah. you, there's no replay in the fifth round this year. No, Newcastle New, New and Mike actually had a board, not a board meeting, a meeting of the members of their board with the fans because the, the whole thing was such a catastrophe, and sat there and said, "We've done a study, and teams like Wigan, who did well in the FA Cup, got relegated a year or two afterwards, and it's financially damaging, so we're not going to do anything in the FA Cup." And that killed the FA Cup. So Newcastle never won third round ties for ages, and the club became as close as you could to get and become pointless. You want to finish fourth or fifth bottom in the Premier League, you've got no interest whatsoever in the Cups. What are we all doing? Come on here. And eventually, it's happened about three times since the war, Newcastle's support dropped off and Mike actually has to find 10, that gives away 10,000 season tickets because the fans have gone, this is all irrelevant. Mm. So you have to have a cup tie, you have to have some glory in your season. Sunderland, who were more chaotic in that period, actually reached the, the League Cup final and had a good first half against Man City and they give their supporters a semi-final. Remember the semi-final win at Man United and the penalty shootout? They had the drama of being a football fan. Otherwise, what's the point? Mm, quite right. Just fun- fundamentally though, the most important thing I think to remember in this is that domestic football should not be shaped in the image desired by six or eight teams in the country. Quite right, Peter. I think there's lots of problems that we've highlighted. I'm not sure we've got any solutions. Listeners, if you have solutions to the FA Cup replay money spinning conundrum, do get in touch. Tom.clark at thetimes.co.uk. We're going to finish away from the FA Cup with two big transfer stories which broke on the Times website over the weekend. On Saturday, we had Paul Joyce reporting that Jordan Henderson wants to leave Saudi Arabia already after only six months. What happened to changing the culture, eh, Jordan? Uh, and on Sunday, Duncan Castles wrote that Kylian Mbappe is unhappy at Real Madrid's attempts to sign him and might consider the Premier League. So we're not going to debate it, we're not going to argue over it, we're not going to get into any deep philosophical footballing chats, we're just going to have a bit of fun. You've got Jordan Henderson and Kylian Mbappe up for grabs, find them a club in the Premier League, Alison Rudd, don't say Liverpool. <laughs> Good luck. No, I'm, bo- I'm, bo- I'm bored with Kylian Mbappe, he just seems more spoiled by the minute. So you're going to send honest. him to Luton? I think, I, I, don't know, I don't know what the boy deserves to be quite honest, I really don't. Um, one minute. His dream, his love, his passion is Real Madrid and now he's annoyed with them and they can't dictate what he does with his life. I mean, make your blooming mind up. It'd be fun to have him in the Premier League, <clears throat> but the Premier League doesn't need him. So you don't even want him? I'm offering, I'm offering you Kylian no, Mbappe for any 20 clubs. I don't want him. I'm going to Someone get lots of emails. What about Jordan Henderson? Who, who could you see him? Because I think I was discussing this with Tony Cascarino for his column and he was saying how he wasn't the only um, big stalwart to leave Liverpool in the summer. James Milner, of course, left as well. Milner does a very James Milner thing and goes to Brighton and is playing and Roberto De Zerbi this week's praising him saying he can break the appearances record and now you've got Jordan Henderson stuck with 300 grand a week and you'd imagine, <laughs> but you'd imagine wouldn't you in the summer that maybe Jordan Henderson would have had many suitors in the Premier League for a, for a player of his experience and class is there yeah. anyone forgetting the money think of a club for Jordan Henderson well I think if he wants to rebuild his image he should go to Sunderland I don't know would, would Martin would Sunderland have him 
They couldn't afford him. He's too old, isn't he? As no, well, but for he's, he's, model, he's, right? he's, he's accrued. Too, he's too tall. He's accrued so much, so much in his short time in the Saudi <laughs> Pro not, League that he can afford to take a massive not, salary. He needs, to, he needs to pay a massive chunk in tax if he comes back. Now. Oh, you're being yeah. too realist. We're just having some fun. Could he go? So Alison's sending him to Newcastle. Martin Hardy, no, no, Sunderland. Sunderland. Sunderland, Sunderland. Sorry. Well, I'll, he plays for a team in Saudi Arabia. I was just going to say. Die in the wood, Sunderland lad, Sunderland fan. So obviously. Send him to St James's Park. Yeah. Um, that, that, and That's to his be real fair, penance. As, as a sitting midfielder, in the absence of Tonali, you could do I, far I'm worse. Trying to think, I'm trying to think whether he's playing for one of the PIF clubs in um, the Public Investment Fund <laughs> for in Saudi Arabia to see if that could actually happen. The salary would be a problem. Yeah, I think I would disagree. I think the Premier League desperately needs, not desperately, really could do with Kylian Mbappe. We're short of stars. The league is short of stars. It's, it's too coachy. Get a big plane. Put him at Man. <laughs> Too coachy. Put him. Put him. Put him, put him at Man United. Oh, so you make, want to destroy Gillian Mbappe? <laughs> sure that make, the vortex can even suck him into though. Make that madness even more chaotic uh, and make Man United relevant again at the top level. I'd, I'd love to see Mbappe play far more, more than I do. That's and obviously we've had a glimpse of him in Paris watching Newcastle play there, and he's a fantastic player. I'd love to see him. At, in the Premier League. Interesting that you say that you worry about Newcastle fans coming up to talk to you about your columns and things, having just said you they should sign Jordan Henderson. We'll see I how know, that goes. I, know, I nearly podcast. didn't say that. Uh, too late now, you've said it. Uh, Gregor, finish with you. Snub, I think we're, sorry, I, snub, snubbed in the milk aisle. I'll yeah. take that. I think we're doing them a disservice. I think every team from West Ham, you take out, he's not going to go to United or Newcastle for the obvious reason, or Chelsea. Now, forget all that, but just genuinely, like. I'm serious. Anyone. I think every other team from West Ham in sixth down would take Jordan Henderson. Pick one. Go on. All of them. No, pick one. He, he, can move, he can move to Newcastle. The game's to pick one. He can go to Newcastle. Pick one. I think he. I think West Ham would take him. Great. In a heartbeat. Now where's Mbappe going? Uh, as soon as Alisson, you know, didn't want to get into this, I, I think the the synergy is with Liverpool. Absolutely. A wide forward, go. dynamic, you know, in your face front foot football. I think that's Liverpool terrifying prospects listeners if you've got any ideas about where Jordan Henson or Kylian Mbappe should go get in touch tom.clark at thetimes.co.uk Martin Hardy Alison Rudd Gregor Robertson thank you very much for joining me we'll be back on Thursday thanks for listening